Stay hungry, stay foolish. Amazon, Netflix, Google, and Uber all have one thing in common. They have built empires on making every interaction effortless for customers. In today's high-speed, customer-empowered worlds, speed and efficiency with which business transactions are made determine ultimate success or failure. In 2016, $4.6 trillion of merchandise was left in abandoned e-commerce shopping carts. Every year, the US economy loses $3 trillion in productivity due to excess bureaucracy. Red tape and overcomplicated licenses have contributed to China's GDP exceeding India's by $82 trillion over the span of just three decades. If you're a business leader, these statistics should give you nightmares. Today's episode dips into a groundbreaking guide which makes the case that every business can gain a competitive edge by reducing the points of friction that impede smooth business exchanges. We welcome author of Friction, the untapped force that can be your most powerful advantage. Roger Dooley, welcome to the show. Well, thanks for having me, Aiden. It's great to have you. So let's jump straight into the book because there's so much in it. And I loved the concept you open with, which is friction goggles. And this story reminded me of the quote by Richard Branson, which is clients do not come first, employees come first. And if you take care of your employees, your employees will take care of your clients. You know, I've read so many books where the introduction is sort of a self-serving thing about, oh, here's why all the reasons why I wrote this book. And then they sort of summarize the chapters. And, you know, I mean, I guess that's fine. That's an accepted way to do an intro. But I tend to skip over those things. Uh, uh, And so I said, okay, I got to do something different. And I put a little fable in there about a company that is going through a bit of a rough patch and the CEO is trying to cut costs internally and ending up resulting in a reduction in the level of customer service. And uh, I did it as a fable because I, I thought it was a great way to introduce people to the idea uh, that friction, the idea of uh, wasted effort, affects both customer experience and internal employee experience. And that the only time when a business can truly thrive is when it has that friction-aware culture where not only are customer interactions effortless, but also employees realize that the company cares about them and the company isn't making them do things that waste their time. I mean, how many times have you talked to somebody who complains about all the stupid meetings they're in that are a total waste of time or bad procedures? Uh, you know, it takes forever to get uh, your expenses paid because the forms are ridiculous and all, you know, all these kinds of uh, friction elements inside companies that serve to tell people that they're wasting their time, uh, you know, that in the company doesn't really care. I think if you address both sides of the issue, that's when a company can be truly successful. Yeah, and I loved the parallel you draw between Amazon, the business Amazon, and the Roman Empire, Roger. I loved this and the need for speed and superhighways. At the time, boats were the fastest mode of travel, but building roads allowed the Roman troops to move at 25 miles per day, which was huge at the time. I'd love if you shared this analogy. 
what I wanted to do, I could have filled the book with examples of digital companies uh, from the last five or 10 years that have really prospered by eliminating friction. And if you go and talk to people in Silicon Valley, everybody talks about, uh, yeah, we, we got to make it frictionless. So whether it's the user onboarding process or the payment process or whatever, you know, so that's it's part of the accepted ethos now in Silicon Valley. But you know, over the centuries, uh, it has been a disruptive influence. And so I, I tried to find an example that really went back many years. And uh, what I saw was uh, the Roman roads were a great friction reducer because before the Romans built these roads to move troops, to move material, uh, supplies, uh, it was very slow and difficult. You had to typically follow dirt roads or paths through forests that twisted and turned and had surfaces that were not smooth, very difficult for wheeled vehicles to move. And if it rained, everything came to a standstill because they turned to mud. And the Romans took the art of road building to an extreme. They made their roads absolutely as straight and flat as possible. I mean, there's almost an obsession where if they had to cross a valley, they would build a bridge so it could be level. They would tunnel through mountains when they were able to. And some of their roads, particularly in places like Britain where it was relatively flat, were just straight as an arrow for miles and miles and miles. And what this enabled them to do is move their men and material far more quickly and they could dominate large areas of geography where before, if you look at typical empires before the Roman time, they uh, they tended to be clustered around coastlines. In other words, they could they could get their people to ports pretty quickly, but they tended not to go hundreds of miles inland because of the difficulty and logistics involved. So they dominated by the coast, but uh, they did not dominate farther in where the Romans conquered massive, massive amounts of territory because whenever they went someplace, they built roads so that they could easily move into it. So to me, that, that was a great example of early friction reduction that uh, really sort of foreshadowed what we see from Amazon and Google and others today. Amazon are the modern day Romans. And you mentioned the chief, which is Jeff Bezos, but in the instance of removing friction, you talk about a key player in Amazon, which is Kintan Brambat. Yes. Uh, you know, I uh, met him at a conference we were both speaking at, uh, and he was actually talking about friction. I, I was already thinking about it uh, and told the conference organizer, my friend, uh, Nir Ayal, who's also a, uh, an author and wrote Hooked and now Indistractable, his recent book. Uh, I said, yeah, I think I'm going to talk about friction. He says, no, no, we got to talk about something else. We already have a guy uh, who's talking about friction. That was kind of a surprise to me, but it turned out that it was uh, Kintan Brambat from Amazon, and he has talked about that topic at uh, different conferences around the country and really sort of shed some light on how Amazon has focused on friction throughout its business and making it very easy. And the most obvious example, of course, is one-click ordering. You know, they patented this back in 1998 when most companies did not think that you could patent something that simple, a process that was so apparently obvious. And at that point, Amazon's competitor was Barnes & Noble, the big bookstore company. And so Barnes & Noble implemented a similar feature uh, on their website. And they got locked in a big legal battle with Amazon. Amazon spent millions of dollars to defend that patent and ultimately prevailed. And the interesting thing, Aiden, is that all they succeeded in doing by that expense was forced all their competitors, Barnes & Noble and everybody else, to add one single tiny little click to their process. Now, when we think about 
designing interfaces, uh, we don't think of one click as being particularly important. If you've used websites or mobile apps uh, that force you to go through all kinds of steps, you know, one click seems like nothing uh, compared to what you might encounter on the web or on your mobile phone. But for Amazon, it was worth it. And something else was kind of interesting. At the same time, Steve Jobs was getting ready to introduce his music store, and he saw one-click ordering. Apple did not fight the patent the way Barnes & Noble did. They didn't try and come up with a technical workaround. They just paid Amazon a million bucks so they could use it, too. And to me, the fact that both Jeff Bezos and Steve Jobs thought that was so important is a lesson for every company out there, that this insignificant amount of effort was worth spending millions of dollars on. You give some great examples. Let's stay on Amazon for a moment because those figures we mentioned in the abandoned shopping carts, Amazon have worked tirelessly and Kintan Brambat at the helm here to try and remove as much friction as possible. And you say sometimes multitasking is a good thing on the net, but other times it's an absolute hindrance. So let's share the Amazon feature known as X-Ray for people who may not be familiar with that. Well, X-Ray was something that originated, uh, I guess, in the Kindle for reading books where you could look up an item in the dictionary without having to, going back to paper books, if you encountered a word that you didn't know, and if you were, a lot of people just skip over it or figure it out from context or not worry about it, but if you wanted to know, you would put your book down and grab a dictionary and look it up. Well, when Kindle came out, they said, well, people might open up a website to look it up, but we could build that feature right into their functionality. So you could click on it and look it up. And when they began introducing uh, videos through Prime Video and Amazon uh, Video, they saw that users had a behavior not unlike what Kindle readers might do. If they saw an actor on the screen, they might say, oh, I know her. What was she in? Oh, I can't think of it. Uh, you know. And then so what they do is they pause the program and uh, open up IMDB, uh, the database of movies and actors and actresses and so on, uh, and look up that person, which, by the way, IMDB happens to be owned by Amazon. Uh, uh, in any case, they said, well, we could make that far easier. What if they could just pause the program and you could see which actors were on the screen at that given moment? Uh, you know, it saves so much time. You're not causing a person to exit the app and go to some other device or another screen within the app or anything else. It, uh, it was just very simple. You could uh, see who they were and say, oh, that's the person. Get a little bio for them. And then you could click for more info if you wanted more in-depth information. It's also been easier to use than IMDb because sometimes you're looking for an actor that maybe only appeared briefly in a series that has dozens and dozens of actors. Even trying to find that person in the list of actors is difficult. But by stopping a movie or a TV show right in a scene, you see only the people who are in that scene. And so it makes it far easier. So anyway, uh, you know, this is one minor little thing, but that is their ethos uh, when uh, you can reduce customer effort, uh, put the customer first, then uh, you will win in the long run. It's not like people were clamoring for this feature. They just saw that they could take a process the customers were currently doing and make it easier for them. And they didn't ask about the ROI of this. They didn't say, well, okay, yeah, it's going to cost them to develop this. Uh, you know, Let's have a three-year projection on the profits or a six-month projection on the profits it's going to generate. They just said this is going to be a feature that will 
will be something that our customers will like, our competitors don't currently have. And also one thing that I find uh, kind of intriguing, although I have not yet seen this in action, somebody told me that they had seen it, perhaps they saw a test, but at the moment, they aren't really profiting directly from seeing these actors' bios and such. But uh, what if you were watching a movie and you see that Tom Cruise is wearing some uh, sunglasses that you like, and so you pause it and you see Tom Cruise and the other actors in the scene, but you also see, say, the Ray-Ban sunglasses that he's wearing with a buy now button. You know, I mean, that to me is a logical extension, although like I say, I, I haven't seen it yet, but you know, how far away can that be? And that, that could turn... Uh, some uh, a useful feature and some, something that's profitable for them. And if indeed you were trying to find out what kind of sunglasses he was wearing, then that wouldn't be just benefit the company. It would benefit you too as a customer. What they're doing is laying the roadway for tomorrow. And that's where I loved your Roman analogy, Roman roads, because they're thinking ahead to what the advantage is going to be. And one of the things you talk about with businesses who reduce friction and Amazon have a a relentless focus on reducing friction for the customer is that it's very hard to catch up with them. And many businesses in disruption, as you know, will say, let somebody else solve it and we'll just copy them. But it takes way, way longer to copy and get up to speed than people always think. Jeff Bezos's approach is put the customer first. And, you know, just about every company, if you read their mission statement, says they put the customer first, Aiden, but it doesn't happen. When push comes to shove, it's always, well, yeah, we want to implement that feature that'll be good for the customers, but we don't have it in this year's budget and we've got to make our numbers, so we'll do it next year. Or let's get a detailed ROI projection on that. You know, that is not the way Jeff Bezos thinks. If he has to spend money now to make things better for the customer, he knows that it will build competitive advantage in the long run. And, you know, the rate at which they're building that advantage is remarkable. Just last year, their share of the e-commerce market as a whole went up 10%. So even as all their competitors get more sophisticated, improve their own logistics and so on, Amazon is still gaining share against them. And their own sales were up almost 20%. So it's really working for them. Jeff himself says that when you reduce friction, you make something easy, people will do more of it, which means they're going to place more orders, they're going to watch more videos. Something else that they do that's super smart is their security does not cause lots of friction. You know, I've been using a bunch of websites uh, in the last couple of days, and several of them automatically log me out after just a short time uh, using the site. This really drives you crazy when in the same session, like while I was sitting there working, I had to log back in five or six times. You know, Amazon doesn't do that. Uh, they keep you logged in seemingly forever. I think you'd have to buy a new computer to get logged out. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's not that they have no security, but their procedures do not get in the way of you clicking that buy now button, that one click order button. Uh, because that is their huge competitive advantage. Now other people can do one click, but Amazon's been using this for years, and so they've trained people to use it. You know, if they forced you to log in every time you visited their site or log in even occasionally, you know, that one click button would not be armed and ready for you to push. You would have to first log in, and that would be extra friction, uh, where nobody else is quite that frictionless. Uh, even today, when they could use the same technology, they don't because what Amazon does is uh, use a sort of defense in depth uh, to prevent fraud. If you want to buy something with one click, 
that button is always ready for you. You can just click it, and within 48 hours or maybe 24 hours, or even if you're lucky, the same day, that item will be on your doorstep. But if you decide to send, say, Amazon gift cards to people by email, which is basically like sending cash, or if you decide to ship a product at an address you've never shipped to before, they will then reauthenticate you. They say, okay, this transaction uh, is presumably some kind of AI machine learning algorithm. says, okay, this transaction uh, is a little bit out of the norm. It could be a little bit riskier for us. So we will then uh, take some additional precaution by asking the customer to uh, re-enter their password or enter a credit card number. But for 99% of their transactions that are just simple, simple routine, yes, I'm going to buy a product and ship it to my usual address with my usual credit card, uh, it's simple one click, no friction at all. And it's important that you say here for any businesses listening is that low friction does not equate to loose security. That's really important to say. But one of the things you mentioned in the book is the coming together of the physical and the virtual or the physical and the digital, the clicks and the bricks, so to speak. And one of the heroes of this, apart from Amazon's experiments with Amazon Go, is Alibaba, the Chinese Amazon, if you will, and they've converged the digital and the physical with their mobile-enabled stores and Alipay and the Taobao app. I'd love if you shared a little bit about this. You know, we think of ourselves as pretty digitally advanced in the States and in Europe, but I think what China has done is really uh, something uh, remarkable where everybody is on their smartphone. They have these mobile apps that enable them to do all kinds of things. They, they basically can do anything. They live in those apps. I just saw an interesting chart. I forget where I saw it, but it showed the buyer journey in, say, the United States where you go from one website to a mobile app to, you know, it sort of bounces around where the entire buyer journey in China can take place on WeChat. Uh, Everything happens there, even though they're using different functions. uh, It's like a straight path. So it's quite a bit different. But in the Amaz stores, they have created these stores that are themselves both exciting but also frictionless. Uh, They have uh, restaurants in them. You can order food. They'll be cooked to order, and your order will be delivered automatically. You can pay with facial recognition. You can pick up your online orders uh, so that uh, if you order uh, merchandise online, uh, then you can pick that up at the Amaz store. Uh, They will also deliver within a three-kilometer radius. They make everything really as simple as possible for their customers to to allow them to conduct almost any kind of transaction they want and make those transactions as easy as possible. And it's, it's really interesting. Apparently, real estate prices have gone up within that radius of new stores. In other words, people find it so valuable to be living within their delivery radius that it's actually increased property prices. So yeah, it's it's pretty fascinating and something that uh, we don't see in Europe or in the States right now. To understand the future retail disruption or even the retail apocalypse that we've seen in the last few years, it's really useful to understand the past. And I'd love if we shared a brief history of retail disruption, as you do in the book, digging into disruption amidst Montgomery Ward, Sears Roebuck, and perhaps Walmart, if we have time. Yeah, I'll I'll try and condense that as much as possible. But uh, I love the uh, mail order concept. I was a mail order entrepreneur a a few decades ago, pre-internet, pre-e-commerce. And it's a great business, but it had its origins two centuries ago now. And it was primarily in rural areas. uh, And entrepreneur uh, saw 
that people in rural areas were underserved. They had two choices for shopping. They could go to local small merchants, uh, where typically uh, the prices were relatively high, or they could go to uh, the city and shop at the big department stores there. But of course, that entailed travel. In fact, in many, in many cases, the local merchants were buying from those big department stores themselves, uh, which was part of the reason their prices were high. Uh, and he started a mail order catalog where the catalog would be uh, delivered and to people's homes by mail, and they could then buy stuff which would also be delivered by mail. I mean, it's, it seems like, like not much of an invention today with e-commerce where we've got multiple fleets of trucks uh, delivering everything to our homes. But at the time, this was a novel concept that you could actually buy stuff like this. And uh, so their business uh, thrived. A, a, a few years later, um, another guy uh, came along, Sears, and started selling watches initially and ended up create, also creating a catalog business, which ultimately surpassed uh, Montgomery Wards in size. Uh, but for years, I mean, this was how, if you lived outside of a major city, this is how you shopped. It was about the only way you could get access to a huge variety of products uh, at competitive prices. And at one point, Sears built what was probably the biggest enclosed industrial facility in the world for handling its orders outside Chicago. Uh, they were um, handling tens of thousands of orders a day. And again, not much compared to what Alibaba does on Singles Day. But, uh, you know, at the time, uh, these they were actually tearing open paper envelopes that had uh, checks in them uh, and processing those orders. It was just they were, they, orders would come in in huge sacks of mail. That's the kind of volume they were seeing. Ultimately, though, they got disrupted themselves. Uh, they began to open retail stores and uh, were successful for a while. Sears was a little bit more successful than Montgomery Wards was with their retail stores. They opened up typically in suburban areas where there was parking. And to some degree, they were a, a disruptive effect on traditional department stores because uh, they were offering uh, convenient locations, uh, inexpensive, uh, but uh, quite a variety of merchandise. And so they, they experienced their second huge wave of growth in retail. Uh, and then finally, Walmart came along and, interestingly enough, focused on rural areas again, because uh, Sears had been building in suburban areas near large cities, uh, which is where they saw, okay, there's a lot of automobile traffic, a lot of customers, we could build stores. Walmart focused on those rural areas that were now only served by Sears catalogs uh, uh, and said, we can build retail stores that can serve a large enough area and be profitable. Uh, and people can come into the store and actually see the merchandise. And they started expanding, and they initially expanded primarily in these underserved rural areas uh, that initially had been targeted a century before by Montgomery Ward and Sears. They grew and grew, and ultimately, as their own volume, they could enter urban markets as well. And uh, now Walmart uh, is the world's biggest retailer. But it's it's been uh, a series of sort of friction-based disruptions, because in each case, they're making it easier for the customer to shop First, the mail order catalogs allow these rural customers to shop without uh, lengthy travel. Then the suburban department stores allow people to drive their car and park and uh, do their shopping and leave easily. Uh, and then you know, Walmart ultimately sort of just carried that concept back to the rural areas and said, okay, we can make it easier for these folks in rural areas. And only then did they go back into the urban centers. I find it such an interesting story, the Montgomery Ward, Sears, Roebuck and Walmart story, because they were the disruptors of their time. 
And it's a, such a lesson in human psychology where it becomes difficult us to, to adapt to a new paradigm, which was digital. So digital comes along, internet comes along. Bezos built his world in that world, laying the Roman roads for the future, while businesses like Sears went under last year or two years ago because they could not adapt to the new paradigm. Right. And you know, there are a lot of reasons why uh, Walmart is still actually doing quite well. And uh, Sears uh, is really in their death throes, it seems. And part of it is management. I mean, you've got to do a lot of things right. You can't just have the right business concept. You've got to execute. You've got to have the right merchandise. You've got to have people who understand how to present merchandise if you're in the retail business. And uh, Sears just really abjectly failed in those things. And they've been selling off their crown jewels, their most valuable properties, things like diehard batteries and craftsman tools that were arguably uh, you know, setting the standard for decades as being the absolute best brand in, in their spaces. Uh, and now uh, Sears is uh, selling those things off to keep some struggling retail stores alive. We mentioned the Roman roads, Roger, but let's turn our attention to transport itself. And here you look at the removal of friction. And I found this fascinating, the amount of friction we tolerated in the taxi business before the days of Uber. I love uh, the taxi industry's industry as an example of friction because it illustrates a key point that I often make, which is that people do not see friction, even though it's there. Or if they do see it, they just assume, well, it's they don't, they pay no attention to it. They ignore it because, well, that's the way it is. You know, it's that's how it's done. And uh, taxis were kind of that way for decades. There was literally no change in the taxi business model. Uh, you know, people would order a taxi by telephone occasionally, or perhaps go find a taxi queue, or stand on the street waving their arms, uh, trying to flag one down. And you know, it's a, a very simple process. People accepted that. And it wasn't until first Uber and then uh, some other competitors like Lyft came along and showed how simple you can make it and how uh, much more predictable the service could be, how much smoother it could be, uh, even things like payment. I mean, uh, you know, I, I know that uh, when I travel, if when I was using taxis, I would have difficulty sometimes finding a taxi that would take credit cards. Or you'd have to go to multiple cabs to find out if someone would take a credit card because I didn't have any local currency. Uh, and uh, then when it's time to leave at your destination, uh, they drive a machine out and try and establish an internet connection and process your credit card. And then you're supposed to uh, add a tip if you're in a culture where tipping is appropriate uh, and, and so on. Uh, you know, and this could take two or three minutes of your time where uh, with an Uber, uh, your payment information is already in there. You just walk out, say goodbye, thank you, and that's it. And once people saw it, uh, how much friction you could eliminate, how easy it could be, then they gravitated to the new services. And Uber's real secret for growth globally uh, was uh, to not seek permission, because in many cases, taxi companies were regulated monopolies and just uh, get a lot of customers in those areas because they felt that their customers would demand uh, the government allow Uber to operate because it was so much better than the existing services. And by and large, that worked. Obviously, there are some places where Uber is still not allowed or where they're, uh, they have their own burdensome restrictions. But uh, you know, by and large, uh, they've grown to do billions in revenue because uh, they provide uh, a much lower friction experience than the traditional methods out there. And of course, services like Uber also remove a lot of friction for the other side of the middleman, which in this case is the driver as well. 
One key to Uber's success is they made onboarding new drivers very easily. If you go to their website, they give about equal prominence to riders and drivers. And if you want to drive for Uber, depending on where you are, because different locales have different restrictions, you could be up and running as a driver. Initially, it might have been hours, but I think now it probably it's a day or two because they do perform some uh, some kinds of checks. Uh, but they can get you up and running quickly on your first, as soon as you start doing rides, you can get paid that same day. The money will be sent to your account. I guess the opposite of that are the London black cabs where there is a really extensive learning process they have to go through, uh, which is called learning the knowledge, uh, which means uh, really an encyclopedic knowledge of uh, all the streets in the city, of attractions and uh, their characteristics and so on. And this is really a great thing. I was in London not long ago and took a couple black cabs and enjoyed the knowledgeable cab drivers. But when there's GPS, is it really necessary for drivers to memorize street maps, particularly since real-time GPS can tell you about things like a traffic accident that makes your usual route less speedy than it might be and can reroute you a different way. So I think that it became very easy to drive for Uber and their competition. And this really enabled a lot of people who might not otherwise be drivers to earn extra money. I know in a few recent Uber trips that I've had, uh, I had a medical student. I had an off-duty police officer. These are both uh, in uh, New Jersey, I think, in the United States. And these people would clearly not be driving taxis, but by being able to do it without a lot of setup time and to be able to do it on their schedule, it enabled them to offer these services. Yeah, and it really is an exemplar of frictionless improvement. One of the heroes of relentless pursuit of minimal user effort that's worth sharing is Google. And I remember, like you, the days of AltaVista search engines, and we certainly have removed a lot of friction since those days. Google is very smart. They focused on simplicity and um, minimal effort, a part of the user. So their initial interface was not a portal. It was a simple little box, a search box uh, on a blank white page. They eliminated all that distraction, but they also minimized the amount of effort it would take for customers to or searchers to get stuff done. Uh, initially, they didn't uh, really have a robust suggestion process, but over time that evolved and now it's driven by AI and machine learning uh, so that if you type one character into that search box, and by the way, the cursor is positioned in the search box when you go to the page, it, that saves you a click. You don't have to tap the screen or click your mouse to get the cursor there. It's right there already. And it starts suggesting things. Uh, you type in W, a lot of people search for weather information. So it's weather is likely to be one of the top choices if you type in W. And if you do click that link, uh, you don't get a list of weather sites that you could then click through to. Right on the very screen next C, they've got the current conditions where you are. They've got the hourly forecast for the rest of the day, the daily forecast for the rest of the week. Basically, probably 99% of the searchers who wanted weather are satisfied with that result. They don't have to click through at all. So basically what that means is with one or two keystrokes, you have gotten all the information you need. Your, your search uh, is satisfied. And of course, now you don't even have to click anything. You can yell at your Google Assistant. You can yell at your Google phone. It makes it so easy and effortless to find information. And if you compare that to what the situation was, you know, even uh, five or 10 years ago, you know, you would be uh, doing a lot more typing, and a lot more clicking. 
So that's one big innovation. But Google is very aware of effort. I've had a couple interactions with uh, their uh, support team for some statistics uh, and advertising stuff. And afterwards, they asked whether I found the process uh, difficult or easy. So they weren't asking uh, G was the person who helped me courteous. They were asking what I thought about the process itself and uh, how effortful it was. This really illustrates their focus on uh, user effort. Something else that they've done, and they've specifically used the word eliminating friction uh, in describing this feature, is autocomplete for web forms. We all have see these forms on the web that uh, you've got to fill out 10 blank spaces or 15 blank spaces or something. And Google created for their Chrome browser an autocomplete feature that will auto-populate all of these fields that you've entered on previous websites. Uh, and this enables you to take a lengthy form and fill most of it out, if not all of it, with just a few keystrokes. But, you know, even today, Aiden, when I surf around the web and occasionally complete forms when I have to, I would guess that more than half of the forms are not properly coded to take full advantage of autocomplete. Uh, instead, maybe few of them work, or I go to the address field and it puts in my phone number because uh, the underlying coding is incorrect. I was registering for a tech conference, and it was a rather long form. There were like a dozen fields in it, which is, uh, for me, a long form. And every single field populated with one word, Roger, my first name, because clearly the coder who had created that form had simply replicated one field, a first name field, and change the visible stuff that you could see. So if you looked at the form, the web page looked fine, but the underlying code meant that I had to type in every single thing completely. So I had to type in my phone number, I had to type in my address and all the other information they wanted, where all of those keystrokes could have been eliminated had it been properly done. I encounter that everywhere. And it's silly because it would save so much effort and also would increase conversion rate. Customers do not like filling in long forms. And the easier you can make it, the more likely they are to go through the process. It's amazing how much money businesses waste on advertising, advertising a product that's essentially flawed. And you kind of think if you put more money into the product and made that better, you would pull clients in rather than having to push them to a flawed website or flawed form, as you said. I mentioned in the intro your book, Brainfluence, which dives deeply into neuroscience and behavioral science and behavior research to attract new customers. And you talk about the science of friction in the book as well. So science friction, Roger, and there's a simple law behind friction you dive a lot deeper into the science behind the law. I'd love if you'd share the first basic law and then delve into the science, which goes back to one of the heroes of the show, Leonardo da Vinci. In physics, friction is invisible, a lot like gravity. You can't see it, and people were not really aware of it, at least as something they could describe until 500 years ago. Of all people, Leonardo da Vinci conducted some really amazing and sophisticated experiments in friction, uh, actually determined the rough value for the coefficient of friction. But his work was lost for centuries. And it wasn't until, boy, about 300 years ago that finally another scientist came along and published work on friction and became part of what we know is physics today. Uh, in physics, friction is a force that directly opposes an object's movement. So when if you're pushing a uh, brick across a table, uh, there's friction there, and friction is going to be acting in direct opposition to the pushing that you're doing. And in psychology or in behavioral science, there is something called the law of least effort or principle of least effort. 
And much more recently, uh, Daniel Kahneman, Nobel Prize winner in behavioral economics, said that there is a law of least effort that applies to both cognitive exertion and physical exertion. So you are making either people's minds work or making them physically work harder. Uh, They will choose an easier path. And that's basically what that says, that people will take the easier path if there is one available. And I think that when people like Jeff Bezos and Steve Jobs say, okay, it's worth saving that one little click, they understand that. If they're even a little bit easier than their competitors, over time, that's going to be a big competitive advantage. There's certainly plenty of both academic and commercial research to show that when you reduce friction, you will get more results. For instance, if you are trying to get people to inquire about your product, in other words, you're doing what's called lead generation, then the shorter and simpler the form, the more leads you're going to get. Anytime you can eliminate a field, you'll get more leads because it's easier for the customer to fill out. Now, that doesn't mean that you can't use friction to steer behavior. Sometimes adding a little friction can help. If you're getting too many unqualified leads, adding a few for uh, fields to the form can screen out those customers who aren't all that interested because they won't want to go through the extra effort, as well as maybe provide you with some additional screening information so you can focus on those that are most valuable. So friction could be a tool. You don't always eliminate it. Sometimes you can use it to steer behavior. That law of least effort uh, underlies so much of human behavior. It applies in just about every, uh, every sphere that we operate in as people. Yeah, and you mentioned there Daniel Kahneman, but another Nobel Prize winner you mentioned is Ronald Coase and his work on transactional costs. It's kind of interesting because he saw that large enterprises, and, and he was writing 100 years or so ago-ish uh, uh, when he was doing his initial theorizing about transaction costs, he saw that big enterprises would succeed because they did not have the sort of friction that occurs when you have two companies dealing with each other. In other words, uh, if I'm going to buy something from you, then we're going to have to have some paperwork procedures. There's got to be trust established. I may not trust you if I haven't done business with you for years. So maybe there's more complicated contract, more detailed accounting and invoicing back and forth and so on. And he said, well, okay, big enterprises can eliminate the transaction costs and thus will be more profitable in the long run. It's kind of interesting because over time, even though those transaction costs might have been eliminated, businesses began to get bigger and more complex and develop levels of hierarchy and bureaucracy that ended up imposing their own friction costs on on the business. So as it turns out, the world wasn't just dominated by giant businesses, but uh, smaller entrepreneurial businesses could thrive as well. And sometimes even organic partnerships uh, where companies deal with suppliers but have a very high level of trust. And I think when Japan was seemed to be taking over the world, uh, particularly with Japanese-made automobiles, this was part of their success. There was a lot of trust, even though companies might be separate companies, a part supplier and a manufacturer, they were like family. There was trust. You didn't have to count every piece. You didn't have to do extensive quality control inspection to be sure that your supplier was not either cheating you or somehow chiseling on what you ordered. And this made for a very efficient process compared to in other cultures where all these transactions were sort of arm's length and involved that those kinds of transaction costs that Coase was referring to. And you mentioned earlier on about Sears and the Goldilocks effect where various elements need to come together for success to happen. And trust is one of those key elements of organizational culture, which is key 
to the success of any business. But one of the aspects of friction you delve deeply into, and I'd love to share with our audience, is organizational friction. There's a scientist, Paul Zak, uh, who is known for his discovery that oxytocin is uh, the trust hormone. You can both measure levels of trust and even induce trust with oxytocin. And he did some fascinating work in companies, and in particular, high-performing organizations, companies that had a track record of success and profitability. What he found was not just by asking people, doing surveys, which would be the more typical research method, but also by taking blood samples from thousands and thousands of people working in these companies and other companies, what his research showed was where there was higher trust between people than the organizations performed better. And it sort of goes back to that example I just gave you of Japanese supplier relationships. They were very efficient because there was trust. They didn't have to have all these protections and safeguards. Where you have a lack of trust, then you have to have rules. You have to have paperwork and all these things that slow down the process of business. Fortunately, I've been an entrepreneur for decades and have not had to really work inside uh, corporate bureaucracies much. But (laughs) I did have a stint a few years ago where a business that I had co-founded and built, we sold it, and I ended up joining the acquiring company for a few years. Like any big company, they had an expense reporting process. So if I traveled on company business, I would have to fill out an expense report. And we've we've all done those uh, many times. And one thing that I found particularly annoying was even though I was at a VP level and I would have to supply a paper receipt for any expense that I incurred, even if it was a $3 coffee in an airport or something. If I wanted to be reimbursed for that, I would have to staple that paper receipt to my expense report. So you can imagine if you went, say, on a week-long trip with multiple stops or something, what your expense report looked like. That would be a whole blizzard of these little tiny papers uh, if you were trying to get reimbursed for stuff. I know there's a lot of stuff I didn't get reimbursed for just because I either forgot or lost the receipt. But That is not required by government regulations or tax regulations. Uh, They have a much more liberal policy as far as documenting expenses. It's a much higher threshold for legal requirement to have a receipt. But after I left the company, I asked the financial guy at the time who had also left the company, I said, well, hey, one thing I always wondered about was why do they have that requirement for receipts? And it was a lack of trust, basically, that they did not trust that people would not somehow abuse the process and submit phony expenses if they did not have to furnish those paper receipts. So it ended up creating a lot of extra work for everybody, both on the employee side. And then also there were people who actually looked through those receipts to make sure they matched up to every single uh, item on the expense report. And I know that happened because one time I lost a receipt somehow between when I filled out the report and when it got uh, processed at headquarters. And I got called on that, said, hey, you know, you're missing this $2 receipt. Uh, either take that off or send us the receipt. Uh, and, you know, you think of all the extra effort that this created simply because of a lack of trust. And, you know, replicate that across all of the rules and procedures. Another great example I have, kind of a historical example, it goes back to Jack Welch's days at General Electric when he was a bureaucracy buster there. And, created a very, very profitable company that after his departure didn't prosper quite as much, but he did succeed in 
creating an incredible amount of company value. And a lot of it was by both delayering, taking layers out of management to enable communication to flow more freely and eliminating uh, uh, wasted overhead, but also eliminating those sort of vertical walls where instead of having to go through channels to talk to somebody, somebody in sales could talk to somebody in manufacturing uh, at their level or go out on the manufacturing floor and ask a, ask a question. And this was a huge change from the previous sort of hierarchical approach that you would have to go up through management to communicate with somebody else. And at one meeting, they had a bunch of union manufacturing guys. And typically, management union relations aren't all that great. In most companies, uh, the union is always suspicious that management is trying to get them to work harder. And one of the managers asked, well, how can we make your job easier? And one machine operator piped up and said, well, okay, I'm handling sharp metal at my machine all day, and I go through a pair of work gloves probably about every week or so. And to get a new pair, I have to turn my machine off, leave my station, leave my building, go to another building, go to the tool crib, fill out a requisition, then find a supervisor to approve the requisition, go back to the tool crib, get the gloves, then come back to my building and my machine and start working again. And that can take an hour or two, depending on how easy or lengthy each of those steps is, finding the supervisor and whether there's a line at the tool crib and such. The reason that rule had been put in place, they surmised, was that they were afraid that people would steal work gloves and they didn't trust their workers not to do it. So the simple solution was put a box of work gloves by the guy's station. Bingo. You've saved yourself an hour or two of productivity, even if they do steal an occasional pair of gloves. It doesn't matter. It has not no comparison at all to the amount of time that was being wasted because of this horribly inefficient process. And in fact, they did find that people did not steal all the work gloves, you know, that by and large, they had no problems at all. And, you know, so that's a good example of how a little more trust can eliminate friction and eliminate a lot of wasted time in organizations. The other thing I found really interesting in your deep dive on Jack Welsh was he was known as Neutron Jack, the reason being that Neutron Bomb wipes out everybody in the building but leaves the building intact, which is kind of a harsh nickname for him. But organizations evolve. And what he did was he delayered the organizations. That's because it had to be done. And he knew that the message took such a long time to get to the recipient of that message. And therefore, he wanted to reduce the barrier between his frontline managers and the ultimate customer, which was the customer on the street. And I'd love if you shared a little bit about this, because it was this work that he was relentless on. And in a way, he removed internal organizational friction, which in turn then helped the customer. Layers of management sort of evolved as businesses grew. There was a sort of a theory that, you know, one person could only supervise so many others. So as the uh, number of employees at the bottom grew, inevitably you added layers and layers above that. And uh, Jack said, no, uh, you know, the communication is way too slow. Uh, in fact, uh, jumping this, this was not an example specifically from GE, but some other research showed that a top management meeting that was held weekly was causing, over the course of a year, hundreds of thousands of hours of effort throughout the organization that was mostly wasted because each of the senior executives at that meeting would have a couple of people working on preparing them for the meeting, getting the information they needed. Those people would be going out to all the division managers, getting the info, and, and so on and so on. And there was this ripple effect that was just creating massive amounts of work throughout the organization. And it 
was not necessary. So the simple solution was to, first of all, change that meaning to monthly instead of weekly, and then also change the concept of preparation for it and what was involved. Because obviously everybody in the meeting wanted to look like they were prepared, so they wanted their people to be thorough. But when this emphasis on thorough preparation echoed its way down through the organization, it just became a massive time suck. And nobody was really aware of this until somebody looked at the process. Nobody could see the whole top to bottom impact until I think in this case, it was an outside consultant tried tallying up all the hours that was were involved in this and said, okay, hey, this is crazy. What would be a parting message that you would leave for our audience, no matter what they're working in, if it's organizations, if it's an entrepreneur as a startup, as an entrepreneur, whatever it may be, what's your final message? What I would encourage people to do is look for friction. Once you see it, you can't really stop seeing it. And the reason for that is our brains have something called the reticular activating system, uh, the RAS that is a filter that screens out everything that you don't need to know at that particular moment. So you can cross a busy street in New York City and your RAS is going to screen out everything except the crosswalk indicator, oncoming cars, and the people right around you. As with the taxi example, we simply screened out all the friction that was involved, the waiting, the uncertainty of, gee, I called the cab, he's not here yet, what's going on, the payment friction. We just screen that out because it what didn't seem to be important, it was normal. And once you start focusing on friction and seeing it, uh, you will see more and more of it. And then I would encourage people not just to see it, but to push back on it in their organizations and even in other organizations. If you have a high friction experience with your cable television provider, your internet provider, or a department store, whatever, you know, take them to task publicly for that if you're not getting satisfied. You may do your little part to make the world better. And within organizations, sometimes it's necessary to push back against people who have important jobs, those people who are responsible for IT, for security, for legal, for compliance. You know, these are important functions. But just like Amazon does, it's important to establish a balance between taking care of the customer, uh, having a smooth employee experience, and these other concerns. You know, somebody needs to be making an informed decision, usually a high-level executive. So it's okay to push back and try and improve things because once people see it and once people's eyes are open to that friction, then they're going to get on the bandwagon too. Fantastic. And Roger, for people who are interested in your work, in hiring you as a speaker and finding out more about the books, where can they find you? The best place to start would be rogerdooley.com. And I've got uh, links to my neuromarketing blog, my Forbes blog, and my social media profiles there. On social media, I am most active on Twitter, where I am at Roger Dooley. And also, I'm easy to find on LinkedIn. Author of Friction, the untapped force that can be your most powerful advantage. Roger Dooley, thank you for joining us. Well, thank you, Aiden. I've enjoyed this conversation. 